Welcome to Holy Unhappiness, conversations about the expectations we have of what the life of faith will feel like. I'm your host, Amanda Held Opelt, author of the book, Holy Unhappiness, God, Goodness, and the Myth of the Blessed Life. Each week, I'll be speaking with writers, pastors, artists, and friends about the myths we believe about the good life. Together, we'll reimagine what blessing can look like if we are willing to look beyond our culture's definition of happiness and success. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. For this upcoming week of Advent is joy, and I wanted to read a poem by David Gate entitled Joy is an Act of Rebellion. Joy is an act of rebellion against established order, which is why the angels brought their glad tidings to the night shift serfs rather than the boardroom suits. Because the joy of heaven, heralded to us, cannot be commoditized, privatized, or monetized. While the system takes all it can from our tired bodies and stacks its weight upon our aching backs, it will never, not ever, ransack our hallelujahs. To talk about the topic of joy, I wanted to speak with an author of a book I just read and loved, a book entitled, entitled Aggressively Happy by Joy Marie Clarkson. Joy is a research associate in theology and literature at King's College London. She is the books and culture editor for Plow Quarterly and hosts a podcast called Speaking with Joy. She's written for places like The Tablet, Christianity Today, and Plow, and wrote a book entitled Aggressively Happy, A Realist's Guide to Believing in the Goodness of Life. And she's the author of a new book entitled You Are a Tree, which is available for pre-order and releasing in mid-February. I'm really excited to have someone who has written a book about happiness on the podcast to talk about joy. I hope you stay tuned. Joy, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me. I've been looking so forward to it. It's great to be here. Yeah. So I'm going to start with kind of the elephant in the room. Um, and that is, <laughs> at least it's an <laughs> elephant in the room to me, is that um, I invited you as a guest onto the Holy Unhappiness podcast, name for the book I wrote called Holy Unhappiness, and you wrote a book entitled Aggressively <laughs> Happy. And I think that probably at first glance, uh, I could see how someone might think that we have these like maybe diametrically opposed perspectives 
in in our books. But I actually think that we, even though we took a very different approach to titling our books, I think our books in many ways carry the same message. And if I would give the elevator speech for my book and the elevator speech for your book, I think I would say that the main message is life is really hard and the world Mm. can be really difficult sometimes. And there's dignity in our sorrow, but there's also dignity in our joy. So what Mm. do we need to do to find joy in life, to, to, to enjoy the gifts that God has given us in a really intentional way? Um, And Mm. I think that's what we're both getting at, (laughs) even (laughs) though our titles are quite, are quite different. Um, And I I have to say that I knew by page five of your book, um, you had already quoted Wendell Berry, Marilyn Robinson, and you referenced a Waylon Jennings song. I was like, I have to have her on the podcast. We we are we are kindred spirits. Um, but yeah, so I think I want to start just by asking you the question I'm asking all my guests for our Advent season. We are going to be talking about joy. Um, what to you? How would you personally define joy? What is joy to Joy Marie Clarkson? <laughs> That's a great question. And I just want to, before I answer that question, I want to say that I agree. I think our books, it sounds like they are kind of shadow sisters of each other. And one of the weird things I found mm. about writing Aggressively Happy was that uh, for a book about happiness, it ended up being often about grieving things and loss, because I think mm. a part of living well in this difficult world is uh, kind of counting your losses and giving them honor mm. and because things are valuable. Um, mm. So one of the things I encountered when I was writing Aggressively Happy uh, is that people often want to make a kind of distinction between joy and happiness. Mm. Um, you know, that there's like, that there's happiness, which is like if you eat candy or you go see a Marvel film or Barbie um, or, you know, something that is, is almost, it's almost associated with silliness or play. Um, Mm -hmm. and then there's joy, which is this very like sober, sincere thing that, Mm -hmm. that is almost to me unrecognizable from what we actually say when we say someone's joyful. Mm. And I think I, um, I wanted to kind of resist that. So when I answer the question, like, what is joy to me? I think it's those moments when you experience life as a gift, Mm. um, not as just something that has to be done or that's the fruit of, of effort or merit, but the sense of, it's like when I think of when I felt joyful, I think of, um, when I got to hold my, my namesake niece in my arms for the first time Mm. and all the subsequent nieces and nephews, I think of eating a meal with friends that I love, um, that's Mm. delicious and tasty. And that's to be with other people. I think of weddings and sunsets. I think of things where you are conscious of the richness of just existing. Hmm. And um, so I think, and I think, you know, joy is a a fruit of the spirit. And I think part of that is that the spirit is a gift. And so joy is an over overflowing of that because it's the sense of being able to stand and behold in these kind of discrete moments that life is a gift and that Hmm. we get to enjoy it. And I think that that those moments can look profound and somber but I also think that joy can be play and silly and just the enjoyment of life as a human being. Uh, and I think that there's something kind of puritanical and unhelpful sometimes about being like, well, my real spiritual joy is when, you know, I'm actually suffering deeply inside, but I'm happy because <laughs> for some reason I'm supposed to be. Um, yeah. So 
that's that's my my hobby horse. <laughs> I, I I so appreciate that, and you've articulated that well because I had a number of people after they read my book said, "Well, you yeah, you wrote a book about unhappiness, but it's really a book about joy." As if yeah, again, distinguishing between happiness and joy. And I'm like, I actually don't think we experience them all that differently in our real life. Mm-hmm. Like, I think happiness and joy are in many ways synonyms. And and part of that too is I think this. Christian propensity, maybe to, mm. to think of play or to think of delight, whether that's t- tasty food or a great movie or laughter as, as somehow unsacred, um, mm. that God is not present in those things that, 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 that real joy is kind of the somber celebratory reveling mm. in the character of God. And I'm just like, I think it's, I think it's both. I think mm-hmm. God is present in that reveling in his character, but I think he's also present in like the taste of an apple or mm-hmm. the taste of like, you know, a, a cinnamon bun. Like I think God, God gave us taste buds and, and he said that the world is good and beautiful when he created it. Mm-hmm. And yes, yeah, so I don't know why we do this thing where like, yeah, play and delight and physical pleasure is not sacred. That's, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, that's a, maybe a feature of modern Christianity, maybe always been a feature of Christianity. I don't know. This, yeah, there's a great little uh, sermon um, that C.S. Lewis gave in uh, in in Oxford called uh, "The Weight of Glory," and he talks about kind of the sense of defining goodness according to lack, and that we have this sense that something's really virtuous if we're holding back or if we're denying ourselves, and that kind of comes mm-hmm. from like the mm-hmm. the Puritan heritage. But that actually, mm-hmm. like, in mm-hmm. when you when you look at a full Christian tradition. Uh, a virtue isn't just lack of something. It's like the right ordered enjoyment of something. And mm. that that should be kind of the orientation of our soul. So anyway, that's something to read if you want to think about really leaning into the idea of desire and enjoyment and joy. Yeah. Yeah. So Joy, we, we have another thing in common besides our taste in, in authors and music. Uh, my middle name given at birth was actually Joy as well. So my, my, my given name was Amanda Joy Held. And I, I have this theory that I have no, I have no data to back it up. But I have this theory that like <laughs> people's naming, the meaning of their names is, is kind of a weight or an identity that they carry with them. And I, I know for mm-hmm. me, maybe this, I don't know if this has been you, but I've always felt this kind of pressure, like my first name, Amanda means beloved, my middle name, Joy, to kind mm-hmm. of embody a person who is lovable or embody a person who is joyful. And so I have felt guilt over the years when I have struggled through seasons of sorrow mm-hmm. or seasons of grief, um, which may be why I wrote the book that I did. But I, I wonder if you've ever experienced that either. I didn't send you that question in advance. So sorry to spring it on you. But I'm just curious if somebody else named Joy with Joy in their name <laughs> has ever felt this pressure to embody positivity. Yes, I definitely have. Um, although I think that and I talk about I talk about my name in the book because my full name is Joy Marie, mm-hmm. which much to my mother's chagrin, mm-hmm. she swears that Marie means consecrated by God, but it does in fact mean bitterness or sorrow, right? <laughs> it does. And yes. um, so I have these kind of like weird, you know, pulling tensions within me. Um, but all through my life, people would react to joy and say, "Oh." I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart, you know, yep. or, or say, you must feel like you have to be happy all the time. Or my mom, who was in ministry used to actually say, you know, it worked out so well. And I named my child joy. I should have named the other kids like obedience and quiet. <laughs> <laughs> so I certainly That's had funny. that kind of, um, over me. And, um, I, I think for me in some ways it's a natural name and that I do feel like I enjoy life and, 
have a natural propensity to joy, but I also have quite a natural propensity to the, to the Marie side of myself. And so I mm-hmm. think I'm thankful that I have both of those things. Um, yeah, but I absolutely agree that having no, I have this, this kind of mystical belief that people's names do have kind of, some kind of significance for them and, and the course of their life. So I share that. Yeah. Yeah, maybe we should co-write that book someday and, and actually do some research on whether or not it's true besides just our our gut feeling about it. Uh, on mm. that note, and that you talk about in in your book, yes, the middle name Marie, um which means bitterness. You you write this if I if I can read from your book. Um you write light uh you say the walls of my soul are thin, you say. Light streams through the cracks and I listen closely. I can hear the heartbeat of the world pulsing away with joy as poignant as grief. I am porous. It all slips through. In the excess of this technicolor universe where we live, I feel it all deeply. Light light slips through my porous soul, but dark things slip through too. Sad and ugly things. I am the canary in the coal mine singing my heart out because the walls are closing in. With my ear to the wall of the world, I hear a death rattle. Lungs eaten up by loss, envy, and hatred. The world I love so much, the birds and the sea and the sunshine, is polluted not only with the haze of actual smog, but with the knowledge that someone, somewhere, is suffering. I can't get it out of my head. I can't get it out of my heart. Such a beautiful paragraph there. So I think for me, what I want to know from you is, what is it like to be you right now in a world that does feel so obviously heavy and hurting and these images of warfare and death and destruction are so present with us. What has it been like to be you in this season? Hmm. That's a, a good question. And I think in some way, I don't want to act like I'm any kind of special person. You know, I think that a lot of us have that experience of being, having thin, thin walled souls. And, mm. um, I think in some ways it's just overstimulating. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of the sense of mm-hmm. there's something all the time and it can talk about this in the book. It can, can generate kind of a paralysis of not knowing how to proceed or um, feeling like you want to do something, but not knowing what to do. Um, mm. And I think something that I think I have, hopefully this is a growth. I do feel like I have gotten better if that is the right word in some way of <laughs> of navigating the world because I used to kind of get into these deep pits where I would just have a hard time um we just have kind of like a, a week or a month of not <laughs> you'd probably call it something like depression um and I think I've gotten slightly better at coping with it not in the sense <laughs> that I feel it less keenly or that I'm less worried about other people suffering in the world um but that I try to focus on loving the people that are in my immediate remit, doing the good mm. that I can do in my own world. And also remembering that I am, I am not God. You know, I always think of that passage in the Psalms where it says, you know, I, I've quiet and composed myself um, like a child against its mother's breast. And I love that image of God as, a, you know, a, it's a weaned child. So it doesn't need mm-hmm. the milk anymore, but it just seeks its mother as, as comfort. And so I mm. think of, going to God and finding comfort there. And then it says, and I do not concern myself with things too great for me. And, um, and I know that there can be kind of a, we do have to continue to open ourselves to the needs of the world, continue to respond to them, continue to not grow weary of trying to 
do the right thing and respond to people in need. But there is also something about acknowledging my own smallness and, mm-hmm. and when I can't do much more casting myself on God, because I won't do anyone else any good if I'm, um, tattered in pieces. And a big part of that has just been, I have learned that actually, and I talk about this in the book as well, although I feel like I've even grown in it since I wrote the book. Um, <laughs> just, you know, uh, I am often surprised at how much like drinking enough water and eating mm. breakfast does <laughs> in fact keep me from like having a meltdown over the state of the world. Um, yes. And so, I yes, love your a- story about being hangry, <laughs> hangry in Paris. Cause I was also once hangry in Paris <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, I was standing under the Eiffel Tower muttering about how hungry and miserable I was. And Tim was like, this is the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> like, we are incredibly <laughs> privileged and lucky to be here. I know, so, but we're still humans. Yes, we still it's so true. Yes, it's so true. I So I think, you know, we're talking about Advent and we're talking about... um you know, what does it mean for, for God to be incarnate and to walk among us in both our joys and our sorrow? And you note um, that the prophet Isaiah describes Jesus as a man acquainted with sorrow. Uh, you write, as if grief was a person Jesus knew. Um, mm. Why is this important to the story of the incarnation, do you think? Mm. I think? I think it's important there's theological reasons and also personal reasons, right? So it's important because it means that God entered into our human experience and is drawing all of its fracturedness and all of its incompleteness up into himself so that it's not the final thing and that it doesn't have the final word. And, um, and that in doing that, you know, he took on human nature, um, and we can talk about how, you know, God is infinite and good, but in the human nature, he knows what it's like to be fragile and to suffer. Mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm. uh, a wonderful thing that's unique about our faith to know. So there's the theological reason of we couldn't have been redeemed without that full taking on of the flesh of human beings. Mm-hmm. I love how Athanasia talks about it in, on the incarnation. If you want to go get into your Advent spirit, go read <laughs> on the incarnation. You can find it online for free. Um, you know, that there's that theological emphasis that if we, if, if Christ didn't take on our full human nature and evolve all its fractured, um, self that we couldn't have been so fully redeemed, but that because God has taken on our, our flesh and our fractured nature and this, these, these bodies that are prone to death, um, that those things are never final. The death is never final. Hmm. Uh, but I think I also just on a personal level, I just find it very comforting to know that no matter what I make of the question of the problem of evil, because I don't really have an answer to that. I know that God is not distanced from my pain and is not indifferent to it. You know, I used to have a friend who totally understood, you know, came from a non-religious background, just couldn't get how, um, how I could cope with being a Christian and not really having an answer to the problem of evil. Cause there, mm-hmm. I don't think there is a truly satisfying one, to be honest. Right. And, and I could under- and I could understand that being kind of a, an inhibition to belief, but to me, it just seemed like God did exist. So I kind of couldn't get over that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. but to know that God is not indifferent to my pain, that he's, that he's experienced it, that he has chosen to inhabit it, that he didn't have to, you know, that there is this sense of divine impassibility. He didn't have to inhabit it, but he did. 
mm-hmm. um, is, is wonderfully comforting to me. And I think I love the word acquainted because I think for most human beings, sorrow or loss, it's not something we like experience once or on an occasion yeah. we move on, right? It's something that we meet again and again in our lives. And we might go for a long time without meeting sorrow, but it's something that we come into contact with again and again. And that's yeah. what that phrase acquainted with grief says to me. It doesn't say God once entered a human body and was crucified and you know rose again and it's all done. There's this sense that Jesus also was acquainted with grief. You know, he mm-hmm. he met it at this point on the road and at that point on the road. It was a part of his human experience, part of his story, just like it's a part of mine. Yeah. And so I can I can sit with and be sat with in that mm-hmm. in those ongoing moments of meeting sorrow along the road. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I also think that it's pretty amazing to see the moments when Jesus is acquainted with joy. Like, I love Jesus mm-hmm. at parties. I love Jesus at dinners. I love Jesus hanging out with people. Um, you know, you, I would just reference that chapter you wrote about <laughs> the importance of the body and taking care of the body and remembering that we have bodies that that need to be cared for. And the joy even that we can experience Mm -hmm. in our body. What does it mean to you then, on the other hand, that God through the incarnation experienced joy in his Mm -hmm. divine and human body? Hmm. That's a great question. I love imagining Jesus like filling up with the happy endorphins of laughter. Um, Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful image or of having a good meal? And, you know, and he was known as... Uh, someone who feasted and didn't do as many fasts as everybody thought mm-hmm. he should. Yeah. And, um, and whose first miracle was to like give more wine at a wedding, you know, <laughs> to make a party better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But not even like, Oh no, they didn't have wine. It's like they had drunk all the wine and he gave them more. You know, right. There's this sense of excess and delight. And um, yeah, that's actually just, a, it's a wonderful thing to meditate on, I think. And it's also interesting because I think it also goes back to that sense we were talking about earlier um, of the sense that, you know, that joy is this kind of somber and important thing. But I wonder what it would be like to read through the Gospels and look for moments where it seems like Jesus is happy. Because I think there actually are quite a lot. Yeah. And to kind of imaginatively dwell on that, um, to kind of fix it in your mind and to say that face that I see in my mind that is presiding over a wedding feast that's holding children that's making a joke that is the mm-hmm. face of the god that loves me yeah. and how much would that change how we go about in the world and what we think yeah. it is to be good and to be holy as you as yeah. talks about it's always fascinating to me that um whenever someone resurrects in scripture there are few few people throughout the bible who are brought back to life brought back from the dead and the first thing that's done is they're almost consistently they're given a meal to eat almost mm-hmm. like this food like the 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 experience of eating and the delight of taste is almost like proof of life again mm-hmm. and even Jesus the disciples always had trouble recognizing him after the resurrection it was when he sat down at a meal to them with the fish um on the shore that they really recognized that this is this is Jesus this is their rabbi i think that's um really really important to pay attention to um it's not just an apparition I, you, Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Jesus and joy are not an apparition. Um, <laughs> I want to read. Um, sorry, I'm always annoying. And I always want to read people's words to them because I just <laughs> want people to hear how beautiful this book is. But you, I want to read from page 37. You say, um, 
this is back to sadness, talking about sadness. Sadness tells me how precious the world is. She tells me how deeply she has loved, how dearly she has hoped, how fully she has trusted. She tells me that all those hopes meant something, pointed to the gladness beating at the heart of the world. She is indignant because she knows her birthright, wholeness, unity, growth. She weeps not because loss meant something, but because it meant a great Oh, wait, sorry. She weeps not because loss meant nothing, but because it meant a great, great deal. Her tears testify to the world that we were meant for, that we should uh, create for our children, that we should taste in baptism. She has her ear to the wall of the world, and she knows it beats with beauty. She wrings her hands in sorrow that we have gotten uh, so out of tune. Sadness sings the same song that joy sings. I just think that's a really beautiful paragraph. Um, and so if, if you tell us like what it, that's what sadness tells us that the world is precious, um, that, that, that this mattered, then what does joy tell us about the world? I think joy tells us that it is very good. You know, that I think of just those opening passages in Genesis where it poetically describes all these different aspects of life being made, you know, from sky to water, to animals, to and it is very good. And I think joy is, it's what I was talking about earlier. It's that response to the fact to life as a gift that we, we didn't have to exist, you know, um, God, God is perfect. God doesn't need anything. And he creates mm -hmm. and he creates creation and us out of this kind of generation of his own love. Yeah. And so I think joy is, I think joy and delight is that testimony to the integrity of the world, that the world mm. is meant to be good. And I think keeping that sense of joy alive is part of what energizes us to make the world a good place because we have to have that sense of the good before we can mm. know how to, to fight for it or um, to live in its light. So I think, I think that's what it is, that yeah. life is good and that it's a gift. Yeah. I love that. You quote, um, Robert Capon, his book, um, The Supper of the Lamb, I've just finished, I'm just about finished reading that, but I love, he says something similar. He says, the world exists not for what it means, but for what it is. Um, and he says um, that um, the whole reason for being must be in its own goodness. God has no use for it, only delight. I think that's mm -hmm. so, that's a, such an important theological truth that I feel like I'm just now grasping on to that God had no need for the world other than delight. And so there's something about our identity. There's something about the, the world at the molecular level that is meant for joy and meant for um, delight. Um, you, you write. So I want to talk about some, again, a little bit going back to some verbiage <laughs> here and some terminology. We, when you think mm -hmm. of happiness, you think of words like contentment, you think about words like joy, happiness, mm -hmm. delight. We have labeled some of those as more sacred than others. Um, and you mm -hmm. write in your book, uh, contentment is a tricky thing because it is easy to either make ourselves miserable wishing we had what other people have or to settle for too little in life. So yeah, I feel like I've always had this kind of squirrely relationship with the word contentment. I don't think I used it once in my book. And people hmm. again have asked me why. Um, it, maybe I used it once or twice. But um, And I think my, my concern about the word is that I feel like it can, it can sometimes be used to control people. Mm -hmm. um, that maybe to coerce them into staying in jobs or communities that are really unhealthy or at, at the very mm -hmm. worst in relationships that may even be abusive. But then again, if we aren't able to find any sort of contentment, 
um, unless something is perfect or flawless, Mm -hmm. then we're going to be jumping ship on every job, every community, every relationship all the time. So how do you find that balance between embracing contentment um, and also knowing when it's time to maybe make a change to seek out something Mm -hmm. better for ourselves? I think that's such a good question. And it's definitely something I am still working on in life. And I think the word that comes to mind is discernment. Um, Cause mm-hmm. I think it's something that you have to discern, you know, that you can't just say this is the black and white answer, but I totally agree with you that I think it can be used as a way to, um, to control. Um, and, you know, I think about, you know, we can apply this to somebody who's in kind of like an unhappy church circumstance, mm-hmm. but not to be, um, controversial, but that was also kind of the language people used for slavery in America. Mm-hmm. You have to be content mm-hmm. with your place. Exactly. And yep. Cole Arthur content- Riley was on at the first week of Advent and spoke about that very thing that hope can be a word that's used to control oppressed peoples. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and even like, this is something I was talking about with one of my friends on the podcast we do together. Sometimes some of the ways that marriage had been talked about when I was younger really scared yep. me off from it. Because they would just talk about basically how it's all terrible. You just have to like kind of cope with it and and get content. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think that can be a real way actually to just like, I think a good thing for us to know is that things do not have to be this way. Mm -hmm. That is a, that is a, and that we have agency, we can make choices and the agency isn't unlimited, right? Like we all have a limited agent, a limited range of things we can do, but we're not stuck. And I think a lot of times what contentment and the negative side can be is just telling people you're, you just, this is, this is the card you've been dealt. It's kind of almost like a predestination. Like this is what, mm-hmm. this is what you have and you just have to live with it. Yeah. Um, but then, so I think, but then as you say, there's, there can also be kind of a, a never enoughness. That's also mm-hmm. very prevalent in our world of, mm-hmm. of feeling like our little garden um, with our family, with our strange little church, with our, strange city government is not enough. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I guess for me personally, um, it has been a matter of, I think learning and I think different religious communities have perhaps the one I grew up in sometimes would tell you to ignore some of your intuitions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but I think learning to take my intuitions about people, situations, places that felt that I felt discontent with taking those to God, taking those people that I felt were actually wise (laughs) and discerning, uh, what can I do with this feeling? You know what I mean? Not, Mm -hmm. should I have it? Should I just resolve it? But what, what do I do with the experience of discontent? Do I, do I decide that actually this place is a good place, but I want to change how I'm approaching it. Mm -hmm. I think that sense of there always being a sense of agency and activity. Yeah. Is important yeah. with contentment. And it goes back to that soul mind thing, which is I've, I've composed and quieted my soul. The contentment is something that you do. It's not something you kind of are just frozen with. Uh, and yeah. mm-hmm. you have to react to. So yeah. I'm totally talking off my cuff, but that, that is my general sense is I think it has to do with discernment, with bringing your intuitions and your, your feelings before God. And, yeah. um, knowing that things don't have to be when someone says, anything, whether it's a place in your world or how marriage has to be, it doesn't have to be the way people describe it. And that a lot of it has to do with choice and agency and 
Yes, yeah. that's a very rambling, unanswered question. No, but no, I, I so appreciate that. And I love that it's about, you're saying that there's a, there's a discipline to it in, in a sense. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's habits associated with discerning whether where you are and, and the places you find yourself are, are the wisest choice in that moment or not. And that involves a prayer and seeking, seeking wisdom and mm. bringing things to the Lord. Yeah. And I want to say something quickly, which is I'm just reacting to your title. I do think that there can be an unholy contentment. Like I think there yeah. can be, it, it is, we think about contentment as a fully um, positive thing, but if mm-hmm. I think that both in our own personal lives, if mm-hmm. we're being consistent, we're allowing ourselves to cons- consistently be treated as less than the mm-hmm. individuals made in the image of God that we are. Yeah. Um, or if we're in institutions that we just say, oh, they'll never change and that there can be a lack of faith that goes into not taking action to try to make something better. Absolutely. Um, and so I think that, but I do think it's a matter of discernment and of faith and of, like you said, disciplines that help you decide, is this a place where I need to cultivate contentment as an mm-hmm. activity, not mm-hmm. as kind of a passive thing? Or is this an area in which I can use my God-given agency to make change, make something better, make something more joyful? Yeah. 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 Well, and on, on that note, I'm going to, you're doing, so I keep springing questions on you that I didn't send you in advance <laughs> because right as I was just before I got online, I was like, I'm finally able to talk to somebody else who wrote a book about happiness. <laughs> I have so much I'm still working through so much I'm unsure mm-hmm. of. And this is something that's been gnawing at me. And this, this be my last question for you. Something that has been gnawing at me literally as I hit send on my manuscript to my editor. <laughs> what do you think it's possible that the pendulum has swung a bit too far. What I mean by that is that like we, I think for many years, many generations, I think of my grandparents' generation, they made no space for, Mm. I don't want to say no space, but they made very little space for unhappiness, uncomfortable feelings, talking about even mental mental health issues. Mm -hmm. It was just kind of put on this veneer of happiness um, and and present a happy, positive face to the world. Or we, what do we call it? We call that toxic positivity, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I think that there is now a growing chorus of voices that are saying there's something holy about lament. There's there's mm-hmm. something holy even about rage and indignation at injustice, grief. We need to make space for grief. And and I'm so thrilled to be maybe part of that chorus of voices that is saying that. But do you think it's possible? <laughs> that negativity in some ways is on trend, that pessimism mm-hmm. and cynicism is on trend. And now joy is maybe seen as naive or joy is like any form of joy is being labeled toxic positivity now. And <laughs> and this is what keeps me up at night is like, oh, no, am I part of the problem? Or am I erasing joy? I don't want to do that. I want to hopefully make space for for happiness as well. So I don't know. That's kind of the last thing I want to hear from you is do, do you think do you think the pendulum is potentially swung too far? Oh, that's a great question. And I mean, on some level, that's why I wrote my book, because I think you can get a very warped view of the world from like Twitter, which is where I was very active back in the day. Um, Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. I observed that basically, if you did anything happy, whether it was like, I enjoyed a cup of tea today, or whatever, um, people would perceive it as, as you said, shallow, or um, ignorant that you just didn't know about things that are happening in the world. Or Mm -hmm. in some way, it can also be kind of purposefully ignoring the needs of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there is always a danger. And I think your swinging pendulum is is helpful because I think you can go 
I don't actually think you can go too far in being joyful because I think if, if it's a virtuous joy, Mm -hmm. then it's, then it's an appropriate response to the goodness and integrity of the world. I also think there's a real danger in, if you don't have a sense of the goodness of life, right. Of the fact that human lives should be enjoyed in, in fullness and community, um, being loved, being free to some degree, then what is the point of the rage and the anger? Do you know what I mean? What mm-hmm. does it point towards mm-hmm. the, our anger should be responding to something being out of place, but that involves a kind of celebration of and centering of what should be the place mm-hmm. um, and what should be the case in the world. And so I think that in an increasingly, and I also think cynicism uh, is it's kind of cancerous and that it makes you feel like you can never do anything. It's like, it's like mm-hmm. the other side of contentment, which is kind of, well, it's all, it's all going to hell. So, you know, what's the point yeah. of, of making any action? Yeah. And so I think finding joy and celebrating it in relationships in, in, in the world is actually really essential for living a kind of active, living in an active posture towards the world. But I also think that and this is what, like I said, it was, it was the funny thing about writing a book about happiness that ended up being mostly about grief. <laughs> I do think that to be able to kind of unironically and deeply appreciate the goodness of the world, you have to be tenderhearted. And a part of being tenderhearted is acknowledging how much loss there is in the world. Um, mm. And I think that a lot of our hard-heartedness doesn't come from really being sad or lamenting. Mm. It comes from putting off being sad and lamenting about things we're really sad about for so long that we can't kind of get to that tender hardness. So I yeah. think what you're doing is great and important because I think that we can't be truly joyful unless we are tender hearted. And as soon as we open up that chasm, we will find bruises and difficult things. Um, yeah. But that, that heart of seeing the world as having some integrity and goodness that is worth fighting for Mr. Frodo, mm-hmm. as Sam would say, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, is also a really important thing. So that's why I kind of playfully called it aggressively happy, which is what someone on Twitter called me an exasperation because I do as, think meant that, it as an insult <laughs> and you, yes. and you titled your book after it. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Um, so I do think that there is, I do think that we have to keep the sense of the world being good mm-hmm. at the center of our, as our, of our, um, our posture towards the world or else we'll kind of lose our way in some sense but that inherent in that is an ability to grieve well. Yeah. I like to, I've been trying to give little, almost like assignments is throughout Advent through the week is, is our focus historically in the church this week has been on the, the virtue of joy. This concept of joy is that maybe the assignment this week is to allow the walls of your soul to be thin as joy <laughs> talks about in her book, allow them to be porous, which means that you will, you will welcome in both the joy and the sorrow and maybe ask yourself this week, is my soul, are the walls of my soul thin or are they thick and hardened? And why might that be? Mm. And how can I thin them out a little bit? Um, Joy, <laughs> tell us about your new book um, and and give us the elevator speech for that book and, and how that maybe relates and tell us where people can find you online if they're interested in reading more. Yes. So, um, if you want to find me, my name is Joy Clarkson, Joy Marie Clarkson, and you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Substack, Facebook, um, uh, usually at Joy Clarkson or at Join Us the Brave. Um, and the book that is coming out in February, I'm so excited about it, is called You Are a Tree and Other Metaphors to Nourish Life, Thought, and Prayer. 
And that is, I mean, it's the title is basically what it is. It's, it's meditating on seven metaphors that are what I call kind of ancient metaphors. They're metaphors drawn from scripture. Like you are people as trees. So we think about Psalm when it says, um, the, the blessed person will be like a tree planted by streams of living water whose leaves do not wither and, and it bears its fruit in season. And that's that metaphor of human beings as trees who are planted, who are rooted, who draw their nourishment from somewhere is used as a metaphor all throughout scripture, but also just in our everyday language about what it means to be a person mm -hmm. who's flourishing. But then other metaphors like wisdom as light. So when we talk about being enlightened mm -hmm. or someone being a lucid thinker, those are all metaphors that we're using to describe the state of knowledge as one in which you're in light and ignorance in which you're in darkness. Um, so it's looking at seven metaphors found in scripture, but it's also just meditating on how our everyday experiences of life kind of illuminate and are the material out of which we understand our, yeah. our kind of unspeakable experiences. Um, and it's pointing to that kind of inherent human need to be able to put words to our experiences and to speak about the things that seem difficult to speak about. And mm. um, it's also kind of responding to what I see as some of the less humane metaphors that have developed over the last couple of centuries. So mm. things like the use of machines and specifically computers, when we're talking about humans mm. that we, that we recharge, that we produce, that we plug and unplug, that we update, you know, it's interesting if we think about humans like machines that are kind of um, mechanistic and replaceable and the same every day, but humans aren't that way. So what does applying a metaphor like that do to how we think about what it is to be human and how it is to flourish, mm. but also other metaphors like metaphors of money and, um, and the corporate world that have infected, you know, we talk about relationships and, investment, you know, is this a worthy mm -hmm. investment in my relationship? So it is thinking about how metaphors shape our life. This is definitely not an elevator pitch. This is like a, this is like an elevator pitch for a very tall building. Um, but, but it's, it's thinking about so how metaphors good, shape our lives. Yes. Yeah. I, I cannot wait. And, and honestly, I'm, I never give people books gifts because I think that's very dangerous to give your friend a book <laughs> as a present because it's like, everybody's got different opinions and tastes and mm -hmm. likes, but I'm actually buying the book aggressively happy as Christmas gifts for friends. Like that's how confident I am that Aww. this book is going to be loved <laughs> wow. by many people. And I, I will eagerly pre-order your next book. I hope you all do too. It is available for pre-order. You are a tree by Joy Marie Clarkson is available for pre-order on um, anywhere you get books. So please be sure and, and check it out. It comes out mid February, right? Yes. February 20th. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Joy, this has been a uh, joy to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> it Thank really so is uh, lovely to <laughs> to connect with you and and to have this this really helpful conversation um, during Advent. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. I so enjoyed our conversation. The reading from the lectionary for this week of Advent is from Psalm one twenty six. I'm going to read it and just want to remind you that the people of God for generations and generations across cultures, tribes, and tongues have been reading and meditating on these words together. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. 
and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Joy to 